As Alex says, we're on the last chapter of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 13, on page 499. Chapter 13, page 499. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing, and when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God, with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things? so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city, and now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I opened the doors 
I, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spend the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joradus, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, O oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder what you made of that as we come to the end of our series in Nehemiah. What did you make of that final chapter? It's not quite maybe what we were expecting as we finish off our time in Nehemiah. Up to this point, if you can remember, it's, it's been pretty encouraging. And so let me very, very quickly recap for us, or maybe if you've joined us halfway through, or if this is your first Sunday with us. Um, here's what's been going on so far as we've journeyed through Nehemiah. I wonder if you can cast your mind back right to chapter 1, as we started with Nehemiah not in Jerusalem or Judah, but over in Susa. The walls were in ruins in Jerusalem. The people were in disarray. And so in the first six chapters, we saw the walls being rebuilt. Rebuilt in the face of opposition, yet rebuilt in a matter of weeks. And then in the next six chapters, we saw how Nehemiah went about restoring and renewing the people of God. We saw the people coming together to hear from the word of God in chapter 8. We saw them confessing their sins in chapter 9. We saw them recommit themselves to God in chapter 10. We saw them repopulate the city in chapter 11. We saw them rededicate the walls last week in chapter 12. And, and, and we saw the, the joy that was involved as this happened. 
last week. And so the end of chapter 12 is a great place to end the book. It's, it's almost the, the Hollywood ending. They all lived happily ever after. Nehemiah, end there, job done. It's as we know it in Hollywood. The love story ends with the kiss and the wedding. Lord of the Rings ends with the ring destroyed and Aragorn is king. Friends ends with Ross and Rachel back together again. Sorry if that's a spoiler. You've had years to watch it. Imagine not ending with the wedding, but it carries on. And they end with the first argument after the first couple of weeks. Or Lord of the Rings ends with the people rebelling against Aragorn. And it just stops. That's not how it works. It's got to be a happy, a live, they all lived happily ever after, right? So as we end in Nehemiah, as we go into this final chapter, things don't look so good. <laughs> the people of God start listening to the world around them rather than God. They compromise in areas that only a few chapters earlier they had committed to follow God. Areas that, as we look at them, we might too be tempted to listen to the voices of the world around us rather than the voice of God. And so whilst we may feel like we don't particularly want the end of chapter 13 or we don't need the end of chapter 13, well, I think we can, it can really help us and we need the realism of chapter 13. And we need the warning of chapter 13. So we're going to have a look at the three areas that came up in this chapter. Three areas where the people of God fail to follow God. And then as we wrap it up, as we bring it round at the end, we'll have a think, what are we to make of this? So plenty for us to get our teeth into this morning. Here's the first area we see where they fail. It's in our worship. Our worship, verses 1 to 14. The people of God fail in terms of their worship. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the center of the worship of God is the temple. And yet we read that the temple is being misused, verse 4. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings, the incense, the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. Do you remember Tobiah from earlier on in Nehemiah? In chapters 4 and 6, Tobiah was the enemy of Nehemiah, was the enemy of God. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, we learn that Tobiah is kind of worming his way in and, and getting to know and building relationships with people on the inside to work against Nehemiah. And now, now he's got his own room in the temple. He, he's really able to build those networks. Now he's right in the center. A place which is all about pleasing God, about enjoying God, about worshiping God, about seeking his favor. Well, they've turned it to please man, and a man who is an enemy of God. 
Now, in verse 6, we're given a bit of context as to what's going on, and, and we're told all of this has happened whilst Nehemiah is away. He's returned back to King Artaxerxes, as he said he would do back in chapter 2. And, and it's not clear here how long he's been away, but it's probably years. And this is how, as he returns, this is how he finds things. And you see how quick Nehemiah is to move. He first identifies the problem, verse 7. I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And then he acts, verse 8. I was greatly displeased. I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. You see, it's, it's not just that part of the temple, part of the house of God was given to an enemy of God, even though that is bad. It's not just that. But that room was meant to be used to store things that would help their worship. It would, was used to store the tithes that were given to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, things that enabled them to do their job so they didn't have to worry about those things. And yet, we're told in verse 10, because they weren't receiving those tithes, well, then they need to return home to their fields in order to enable themselves to live. You see what's happening? Nehemiah sums that up in verse 11. Why is the house of God neglected? Exactly the promise that they had made not to do back in chapter 10, verse 39. They make friendship with the world over their worship to God. And so I wonder where, where we may be in danger of, of making friendship with the world over our loyalty to God. What are the things that, that can be in danger of, of pulling us away from our worship? Whether that's on a, a Sunday, the things that can keep us away from church, or, or even during the week the things that can take us away, the things that can take our priority from spending time with God or, or time with other believers. Here's the first warning, our worship. The people of God are making friends with enemies of God that's taking them away from God. And then second, we see our work, verses 15 to 22, our work. The people of God fail when it came to the Sabbath. The people of God are working on the Sabbath rather than taking it as a day of rest. Did you see it? Verse 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish, all kinds of merchandise, selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. You see, the Sabbath day was made for the people of God to mark them out as different from those around them. They're given a day in their week to rest from their work, just like God did right at the end of creation back in Genesis. It showed that they were different show that they didn't live for this world or didn't live for their work. They're, not made, they're made not just for work, but for worship too. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're told that, that the Sabbath day was given to them to remind them, them that, to remind them that they've been taken out of slavery, a place where they would have worked nonstop seven days a week. And it's to say, that's not you now. Rest and worship. And so Nehemiah confronts them here and says, verse 17, they're desecrating the Sabbath. In fact, verse 18, he warns them, it is this that led to their exile in the first place. And so in Jeremiah, the prophet who who prophesied to Judah before their exile, warning them of the first exile, says this in chapter 17. I think it will come up on the screen. If you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any load as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. Nehemiah warns them, learn from history. See the danger. And yet the people of God think that it will be better for their work, better for the economy, if they relax the Sabbath. Do you see how God is is just slowly pushed to the margins? And again, it goes against exactly what they committed to do back in chapter 10, verse 31. And so in verses 19 to 21, Nehemiah acts to stop this from happening. Have a look down. He shuts the doors. He he stations men at the gates. He, He warns the sellers directly. He guards, puts Levites to guard the gates. And so today, as we look back at the Old Testament, what does that look like for us as New Testament believers? Well, this, this principle of, of Sabbath rest is, is still good for us today. Not as, as a law that we must follow, no, but rather as an inv- invitation that we get to enjoy. It's, it's an invitation for us to pause from our work. An invitation for us to come every Sunday to to meet with one another. And more than that, to meet with the living God. It's an invitation to rest. And in this invitation, there's a challenge. Will we trust God with our work so that we can pause, we can stop, and we can rest? And so as we get into the New Testament, we see how the Sabbath law is wonderfully fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 11, he calls people and says, look, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest your souls. What a beautiful invitation that is to to anyone here who is feeling weary or, or burdened or under pressure or feeling like it's just too much. Come to Jesus and you don't find a, a wagging finger that says, I told you so, or what have you done again? Now come to Jesus and you find arms open wide that say, come to me and rest. 
Will we commit to him our work? And so will we rest in him. Our worship, our work. And like Claire, for the third one, I was looking for another W, but all I could find was relationships. Now, I could go relationships, but that's a bit cheesy, so we won't go there. Uh, Number three, our relationships, verses 23 to 31. Here's the final issue. The people of God fail when it comes to their relationships. Verse 23 Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, from Ammon, from Moab. Again, looking back at chapter 10 and the commitments they made to God, again, exactly what they said they wouldn't do. Chapter 10, verse 30. It's it's incredible how the three things, three of the things they said in chapter 10, they committed to God to do, yet they end up being unfaithful to God. What's the issue with this? Well, Nehemiah says, see the impact it has on the children. Verse 24. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. You see, the children can't speak the language. And speaking the language was so important. They can't understand the scriptures. They can't get involved in the worship. But it's not just the impact on the children. Nehemiah says, learn the warnings from history. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among him, among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. This is what led to King Solomon's downfall. And with him the downfall of Israel. Don't go down that same path, Nehemiah pleads. And so, Nehemiah says, it's even crept into the temple leaders. Verse 28. One of the sons of Joada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. Do you remember him, Sambalat? Along with Tobiah, two of the ringleaders of the opposition against Nehemiah and the people back in chapters 4 and 6. The enemy of God, his daughter is married into the priesthood's family. And so we need to be really careful with a passage like this and see that the concern here is not racial but religious. You see, marrying non Jewish people for the Jewish people would have been real danger. They would have led them astray from their devotion to God. They would have made, had compromises on the people's uh, beliefs and idolatries, compromising on their partners' idolatries. It would, as Nehemiah said, led some of the children astray. And so it, it waters down the distinctiveness of the people of God. And you notice how seriously Nehemiah takes this? He calls it, verse 27, a wickedness. Verse 28, he he drove them out. Verse 25, I wonder what you made of this verse. I rebuked them, called down curses on them. I beat some of the men, pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Now, there's no comment here on, on a judgment of what Nehemiah does. 
But we have seen previous in the Old Testament where curses are pulled down, where, where the um, removal of hair is a, is a symbolic act. It may be not the best reaction, but it shows how much it moved Nehemiah. There's a warning to those marrying outside of the people of God because there's a danger to those marrying outside of the people of God. And so that warning carries over to us today. And, and I realize that as I say that, this will be a really hard topic for some people here to hear. For those here who, who are single, who are looking to be married, are thinking about marriage, can I encourage you that whoever you might marry shares your faith in Jesus Christ? Because just like what happened to Solomon, the danger of sharing your life with someone who doesn't share your faith is that it will weaken your devotion to Jesus Christ. It can lead to, be, to you being led away. And, and so it will extend, I think, not just to those we marry, but for those we will date or go out with or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the language is that's used today. Ensure that it that it's with someone who shares your faith in Jesus Christ. Because if your faith in Jesus Christ is the most important thing to you, then surely you'll want that in the person that you spend your life with, right? Otherwise, the danger is that, that we can spend our life walking through life with someone with a totally different worldview, a, a, a totally different attitude to life. And, and look, I'm, I'm not saying that that person will be kind of deliberately out to, to stop you from following Jesus. But when things are hard, I want the person closest to me to be praying for me. <laughs> I want the person closest to me to be praying with me. I want the per that person to be showing me Jesus, to be telling me what he tells me, that he loves me that he'll never let me go. I want that person stood next to me in church, singing with me, praising God. And so if this is something that you find really hard, please do speak to someone here. If you're a young person here and you're just not sure, please do speak to Alex or, or to one of the female youth leaders. Please do speak to Caroline or to Rob or to myself or, or to a house group leaders. We want to help each other keep going in the faith. And I think it's worth saying at this point, I'm, I'm conscious that there are those in our church family who are married to those to people who aren't Christians, who, who wonderfully have become Christians since getting married. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, keep going in those marriages. Be the best wife or husband that you can possibly be. And pray for that impact on your spouse, on your children. And I think there's a call for us as church family to be supporting those people as they walk through what can be a really, really hard path to walk in. Our worship, our work, I'm not going to say it, our relationships. Here are the warnings from chapter 13. 
But don't slip back into the compromises with the world in our church life, in our work life, in our home life. Be aware of the social pressures, a desire to get on with the people around us. Beware of the work and the career pressures, a desire to get further in the world. Beware of the relational pressures, the, the pull of people that can pull us away from God. And that will be a challenge to us corporately as a church, not just individually. Will we continue to listen to what God has to say to us rather than a compromise, slipping into a compromise with what the world and culture might have to say to us? And so that's it. (laughs) That's Nehemiah. And do you realize that as Nehemiah comes to a close, so the Old Testament comes to a close. It can be a bit misleading in our Bibles because there's so much of the Old Testament to come. But the Old Testament was organized by genre or book type. And so we have all the poetry books and all the prophetic books to come. But if you were to lay it out chronologically, well, that's it after Nehemiah. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? After the high of chapter 12, I'm kind of thinking, well, it should end after chapter 12. I'm I'm left with questions. I'm left wanting more. I'm left needing more. Nehemiah, as we've seen through the book, is is a good leader who, who, did you notice after each of the episodes in this chapter, commends himself to God. Verse 14, verse 22, verse 31. He prays to his God. He seeks God's approval, not man's approval. And yet he could not do everything that the people needed. We're left, the people are left needing a better leader. And I wonder, did you notice the other thing that happens after each of the episodes in this chapter? In verse 9. In verse 22. In verse 30, do you see the common theme? Purification is needed. Purification of the people is needed. Purification in the Old Testament is is to set apart as holy. Holiness is needed amongst the people. And so it points forward to the need that the people still have. They need purifying. They need changing. They need transformation. We're left wanting more. We're left hoping for more. And then there's 400 years of silence until there was one who came who changed everything, who changed our approach to the way we rest and approach our work. And so we can enjoy our Sabbath rest in him. Who changed our relationships, who shows our deepest need is relationship with Him. And in fact, and we looked at this a little bit on Wednesday at Equip, in fact, showed us that our marriages here are only to prepare us for the marriage made in heaven with Him. He came to change us. Did you notice the first purification was of the temple, not the people? And so in the Old Testament, it was the temple that was, was the place where God was found. And so the temple needed purifying. In the New Testament, it says that every believer is a temple because it is in every believer that God is now found. 
And so a purifying, a changing, a transformation is needed in every believer. A transformation that cannot be done by our own human effort. A transform that is done from within by the Holy Spirit. Our need is met in Jesus. And so the people in Nehemiah's day are left looking forward, waiting for that day. And so we today can, are able to look back and see all that Jesus has done. And yet, if you're anything like me, I can look around at the state of the world, even look around at the state of the church today, and I'm left wanting more. And so as we come to the end of Nehemiah, it also points us to look forward. Look forward to a future day when he will gather his people together. Where his people, we've seen a number of times, we've said in Revelation 21, his people are called the New Jerusalem, the holy city. And we will be with him forever. Enjoying perfect worship. Enjoying perfect rest. Enjoying perfect relationship. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the lessons that we learn throughout Nehemiah and here in chapter 13. Father, help us to learn these lessons and help us to see our need for a wonderful Savior who comes to transform us and purify us from within. May you keep rebuilding and restoring and renewing our church here and keep help, helping us look forward to that day where we wonderfully will be with you, enjoying rest, relationship, and worship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.